TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast, episode 75. This episode is brought to you by the Saris Cycling Group. For over 25 years, Saris has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. Saris has collaborated with architects, city planners, and transportation engineers to ensure their products are some of the most durable, innovative, and intuitive infrastructure products around. And for as long as Saris has been making products in Madison, Wisconsin, they've been standing shoulder to shoulder with many of the Bike Nerds guests in supporting efforts to make bicycling more safe, accessible, and fun. Why? Because Saris believes a better world includes more bikes. To stay up to date on what Saris is doing for bike parking and infrastructure, visit sarisparking.com slash bike nerds. Again, that's sarisparking.com slash bike nerds. Sarah, this is episode 75. It feels like a milestone. You know what? I didn't realize it was episode 75. It is a milestone, Kyle. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations to you as well. Um, it feels like we sh- it's not episode 100, right? It's a little less important than your 100th episode. But 75 is quite an achievement. I think it's achie- ach- I think it is an achievement. I also think it's all how you look at it. Maybe 75 is just as important as 100. <laughs> or maybe there's like some people who are like, that's 74 episodes too many. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. This was it. Uh, I feel like we should have done something. We should have like a cake or something here for uh, episode 75. But no cake, yeah, no cake today. I'm not, yeah, I'm not big on the, those type of celebrations. 100 feels worthy because like, you know, like the Friends, cele- like the Friends sitcom celebra- celebrated their 100th episode you know that feels more appropriate yeah because we're uh, like a sitcom yeah in the comic book world episode one uh not yet episode issue 100 in comic books is actually a really big milestone if you if you've lasted like a hundred issues in a comic book uh you've sort of made it that's that's really mul- that's multiple years well you know they How do often like, they do, do comic books come out typically like once a month oh that is a lot yeah. so in 75 oftentimes will garner uh, its own uh, individual praise, you know, a special cover or a tribute issue or something like that as well. Um, huh. Yeah, yeah. So we're just well, like, we're just like the comic books in Friends, yeah. apparently. And Friends. <laughs> That's what I say about this show a lot of times. It's like people ask it's me just, what, what it's like. I was like, it's it's like Friends, but with comic books. <laughs> it's just like that. Yeah, uh, that's what I do too. That's so funny. Uh, How's the world, wagon shoots? The world is the world is great. I've been. I've just been busy. I've been doing a lot of like home projects. Carrie's got me doing some uh, some decorating work at the house with some antique barnwood. Um, so I've been sanding, cutting, staining. I'll send you a photo when it's all done. But I'm pretty pleased with my woodworking skills. Yeah, I'm excited just about the final product. Yeah, I'm not going to send you any of the, the middle ground I don't stuff. Need, no, I don't no, no. There's a lot but of a lot of splinters like in my hand. Project. Uh, Ethan started up fall soccer this past weekend and scored two goals 
Football two, player. Two goals on his uh, soccer debut for the fall 2017 season, uh, which was great. He was super excited about scoring two goals. Were you excited? Yeah, it was great. It was great. And, you know, I think it helps. He's in this. Uh, he's in this age bracket. It's like age five to seven, and it kind of helps. That oh, so age, he's like the all star. Well, yeah, it, but it helps at age five that he's like a head taller than everybody else yeah. on the field. <laughs> and so, you know, when he starts like when he takes the ball away from the kid who's a foot shorter than he is, and then he runs towards the goal. I can only imagine what that goalie is is fearing, seeing Ethan like barrel at them with barrel the ball. I, would, I think I would let just let him score and shoot, uh, shoot and score um, if I if I was uh, him or her. Are you still running? Yeah, I've been running, uh, not quite as often. I, I've I haven't been doing it at work. So when I was training for the half marathon, I was I had like scheduled times that I would put in my calendar. And I would go for like a lunch run, but I've, yeah, I've just been doing it mostly on the weekends. What about you? Are you running? No, I'm not running. <laughs> Why not? Just not making. I'm actually making a conscious decision not to run. Oh, maybe we should do like a half marathon together. Absolutely not. I would do like <laughs> no, I would like like a centennial ride with you. Oh, a century. A century. Yeah. I, I'd like a to do a, cent- a centennial ride. It feels like. <laughs> It feels like in the year 1900. Uh, oh, my God. We our, I embarrassed myself. Penny, we got our penny farthings out for the centennial ride this year. Oh Ma and Pa are going to go down to the 4th of July fireworks parade after that. I got my hoop skirt all ready for the centennial <laughs> ride. They got this brand new thing called Big Band Music. Uh, okay. The, the century ride. You, you we should do, do a century. We, why don't we train for a century ride and do a century ride? For our hundredth episode, oof! Uh, I've done I've done a couple century rides. I don't you don't have to train for it. You can just get out there and do it. Yeah, I know. Depends. Training just makes you do it faster. How how fast do you want to do it? Not. I don't care about speed. Oh, perfect. That's that's the, <laughs> that's the speed that I actually operate. Yeah. Uh, my speed is I don't care about speed. You know, if you if you take your bike north of Memphis, you can do a century ride up to Fort Pillow State Park. And you can camp there. I just heard about Fort Pillow. It's great. I want to do a bike camping trip. Maybe I'll do it to Fort Pillow. Well, it's it, that's where it, you and a, you did your epic yeah, watermelon yeah. ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, def, it's definitely a hundred miles. You might want to start off going to like to Shelby Forest State Park. Yes, that's a much easier uh, first bike camping trip to sort of test the uh, test the waters. I did that a couple times as well. Uh, but the Fort Pillow ride is really, really fun. Um, it's just sort of like on the backwood, back roads of Tennessee, you know, close to the river, Mississippi River, but not really, really up against it. But you get some nice hills and some nice terrain, uh, shaded, you know, not lots, not a lot of car traffic, just a, a really nice, peaceful ride in the, in the countryside of Tennessee. Do you think there's any bed and breakfasts over there? There's not. I'm really interested, to be completely honest, I'm like, I want to do a bike camp ride. I really want to bike 75 to 100 miles to a fancy bed and breakfast. I think Mississippi might be the place to go. Yeah. Or there's a ton of like travel things that can hook you up. Uh, my friend Jenny Park from Chattanooga did a tour in Germany along the Danube she, River. She's been on this podcast as well. She has been indeed. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of opportunities for that. We could we could do a century ride for our 100th episode. That's going to be like, 
in December. So we should we should think about mm. where we're going to go for our mm. century ride in December. <laughs> mm. Maybe we do a century ride for like the 125th episode. Yeah, I like that better. <laughs> that feels more epic too. Or, or here, we can tag team this. You do 50 miles. I'll do 50 miles together. Yes. Our combined forces will be 100 miles and we can document that somehow. I love it. All right. We can take this offline. Maybe so. Or maybe our listeners really care that much about our plans for the 100th episode. <laughs> maybe. We'll see. Hey, who do we have on this week's episode? We have Kate Fillinier of NACTO, the director of strategy with NACTO. I like the fact that when you say her whole name, it ends with yay. Yay. Me too. I like it as well. Uh, and I say that because I that's how I felt after having this conversation with Kate. She's, she's super smart. Uh, super sharp, up to date on all things cities, up to date on all things bike share. And, you know, uh, through her work at NACTO has really been leading a lot of the analysis and technical details that most bike share systems today are utilizing as their base level of information of understanding what to do. Yes. A brilliant mind on the bike share front. Also really generous. We were on the flight from Montreal to New York um, on our way back from the conference and my flight was delayed and she kindly offered that if I got really in a bind that I could stay at her apartment. Wow. Which I found to be really great. Wow. And then the whole entire interview, I kept in my head being like, it's Kate, not Kat. It's Kate, not Kat. I don't know. Like my brain got all scrambled and I kept wanting to call her Kat Felinier and that's not her name. Oh, <laughs> it's paralyzing. Uh, I should listen. I should listen back to the episode and find out. I if didn't you did do it at all, but it was like I literally was like paralyzed. I would be like, "Okay, Sarah, it's your turn to talk. You're going to use her name, so people, <laughs> Kyle and Kat know, and Kate. I just did it. I know no, you you're speaking it. to them, but like take a break. I don't know what was going on with my brain. I hated it. I'm sorry about that, but, but I loved the interview. Yeah, at least her content was good. <laughs> to, yeah. to escape your uh, uneasiness there. Uh, yeah, super great episode. Another another good bike share episode. We're getting some good feedback on our bike share episodes so far. We are. Where's this feedback? I mean, I'll send it to you if you want to. All you all you have to do is like you know check our accounts. <laughs> Do you have the login passwords? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll find it on my own. No, we're getting good feedback. And I think it's just because that bike share is a timely uh, issue right now. It's getting lots of press and lots of news. Good theme. I would um, I would suggest that we somehow planned this, but we didn't. So uh, it feels very timely and uh, we're going to own it. But we didn't actually we didn't actually plan it that way. No, we didn't. Like most things. We did plan it around NAVSA, though. Like most things, we didn't plan it. <laughs> hey. Organic. Nope. It's organic. It's just like friends. But now we're just like friends. <laughs> I'll be there for you. Uh, Sarah, <laughs> should we do this? Let's do it. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us from New York City. Yeah, it's exciting to be here. It's exciting to be in the World Wide Web of podcasting. I know. I was saying that it's a little virtual, but yes. It's virtual, but it still feels, I mean, we're connecting, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, Kate, how was, we were able to connect in Montreal at the NABSA annual meeting. Yeah. How was Montreal from you, just from like a personal perspective? 
It was great. Um, I'd never been there. I'd actually never been to Canada, and I'd always sort of kind of mentally avoided Montreal for a whole complicated set of reasons. And so I was totally blown away. It was really awesome. I was not expecting really any of how much they, you know, built out for bikes or how many bike how many people riding there would be or just flat out how gorgeous the city was. So it was pretty neat. Really Do you care to elaborate on why you purposely avoided Montreal? Uh, bike share drama. Oh. <laughs> How's that for an answer? No, um, we, we, uh, when we were launching the New York system, we sort of managed to launch right in the middle or sort of right at the beginning of the, the original uh, bankruptcy and collapse of the Bixie system. And so suddenly it became the sort of running joke around the office of, oh God, it's from Canada. Uh, <laughs> and I'd never been there before, so I really had nothing else to base anything off of. Um, so actually one of the cool things was to get a chance to talk to the Bixie guys today and see how much that company has really managed to, to resurrect itself. Yeah, I was also impressed with, I was not expecting that level of bike infrastructure and protected lanes and lights. And I guess I didn't really have an expectation as I usually don't have expectations as I navigate my life, but I was really kind of blown away, not only by how prolific bike share was in Montreal, where I never felt like I couldn't find a station. And then just the the infrastructure was, was really fun to bike around on. Yeah, it was really a hoot coming in. Um, We got in around like, I don't know, five-ish on maybe Tuesday, whatever day that was, you know, and just sort of like walking around in downtown, even to our hotel and just, you know, every street you passed, every corner you came to, there were, you know, 20, 30, 40 people queuing up for the light on a bike. And you're just like, this is insane. These are really high numbers. This is really cool. So it was a really interesting thing to, you know, it was really exciting to, you know, see how much is there. Did you see anything, Kate, that U.S. cities could learn from in terms of their infrastructure development? You know, I don't, yes and no. Uh, I don't have a great sense of the, the full history and, and the rollout in the network. Uh, so on some of the things that I think U.S. cities really need to work on in terms of the like the nitty gritty of how did they get it done and how are different lanes connected, I don't feel like I've got a great sense. On some of the more sort of just simplicity of some of the designs, you know, yeah, they totally do. Uh, we were riding back from something one night on, you know, a one-way street with a uh, two-way bike lane on one side parking protected um you know in most u.s cities there's a pretty substantial buffer between the the parking protected lane and the parked cars you know and some of it's really nice it makes it more comfortable you don't have to worry about getting doored on the other hand it's not absolutely absolutely necessary because the thing that's really scary about getting doored is that you're going to get is that you're going to fall into the path of an oncoming car and get killed and so if you're just falling into a bike lane it's not good you could probably get pretty hurt but the chances of getting hit by a car are pretty much non-existent and so davis got rid of the buffer. Um, you know, and in terms of streets where you don't have a lot of space, it's interesting to think that there is what looks like a pretty viable, safe bike lane model that, you know, uses two feet less width. And, you know, in a lot of places that two feet can make or break a project. So yeah, there was some cool stuff. Uh, they had a lot of sort of more hardcore infrastructure sort of built out that was just nicely done, you know, well-signed, really clear, And I think that was also a pretty valuable set of lessons. You know, we were, you know, I know, again, I know nothing about Montreal. I'd never been there. And it was really, really easy to navigate and figure out where we were 
you know, I had to check my phone like twice to be like general direction. Okay. Yeah, we go that way. But beyond that, the actual finding my way around by bike was really easy. And I think that's something that, you know, in a lot of cities isn't the case. And that's part of the reason why people don't ride. Cause you know, you're riding along something and you get to an intersection and you're like, Oh God, where do I go? You know, and sort of taking that out of the equation was really nice. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. That, that's a really good indicator about whether or not your bike network is serving all sorts of people. And the fact, just the simple fact that could a stranger come to your town and, and navigate the city by bike and feel comfortable doing that? Was there yeah. was there anything that you saw that you that you thought like like whoa, we should be doing this more in the U.S. or promoting this more in the U.S.? Um, I mean, a lot of their downtown stuff was, you know, the like really simple, you know, just. I don't know, one foot wide piece of concrete. And that was the separator between the, the bike lane and the moving cars or the bike lane and the, and the park cars. You know, and again, it's really nice to have that physical separation um, that is, you know, it's a piece of concrete. It's a pretty cool thing. Um, you know, and it's also nice to see it in a city like Montreal that so clearly gets copious amounts of snow, you know, and they must have a snow clearing policy. And you think about all the cities for whom, you know, snow or, or bad weather is often their excuse for not putting in more robust infrastructure. And so it's good to see that you can do it. And cities that have infinitely more snow than most places in the United States do do it. I think the other thing would just be, um, you know, wandering around using bike share there, using Dixie there, super easy, you know, and we have bike share in New York, we have bike share in a lot of cities in the United States, you know, but I really didn't have to look very hard to find a station. There was always one, you know, a couple of blocks away. There was one right by my hotel. There was one right where we were, where the conference was. There were, you know, at least four others within, you know, two to three minute walk. And I think the the sort of ease of use on the customer side that that station and city set up in, in Montreal is, it's, you know, it's part of the reason why that system works. You know, and they're not a big city. I mean, population wise, Montreal isn't huge. I think they have like 6,000 bikes on the ground and they were saying that they were having peak days of 40,000 trips. And that's a really big deal. That's a huge number. Why don't we work with Canada more, Kate, from like the U.S. perspective? It it feels like they're a really close neighbor in many ways, very similar to, you know, the same political and economical systems here in the U.S. But do, do we do we wrongfully sort of overlook progress in Canada, do you think? You know, it's funny. So uh, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver are all NACDO members. So, you know, National Association of what, City Transportation Officials. So they're members. And so they're actually pretty deeply involved. And I think on the some of the specific infrastructure line, like, we learn a lot from Vancouver. We learn a lot from, from Toronto. Um, Montreal is probably honestly harder to some extent because of the language, which is a really stupid and horrible reason, but it's, you know, probably true. Um, and yeah, we probably do undercount how much good stuff and sort of interesting thinking is happening in those places. Um, I think we, under, I mean, the U.S. is sort of known for a fair deal of parochialism in terms of... What? You know, oh, well. <laughs> what? Yeah, no, I know. It's kind of hilarious. Wait a second. <laughs> I know, it's shocking, right? Because um, actually, like, the, the, one of the coolest bike cities that I've seen recently is Paris which is like, you know, I try to ask people about it and they're like, I, we don't know anything about that. And again, like some of its language, like all of their written stuff is, you know, harder for most folks to read. Um, but I mean, that's a crazy city in terms of what they've done for biking in the past 10 years. I mean, they went from a city where like 10, 15 years ago, I don't remember ever seeing a bike there 
to like, you know, full on biking Mecca. And in the same way of Montreal, where like you could ride around as a total newcomer and like generally be fine and not get too lost because the bike lanes take you where you need to go. Like Paris is the real deal. Do you have a perspective on Paris's bike share system as well? Because they've had bike share for quite some time. Has that did that drive their infrastructure over the last 10 to 15 years as well and ridership? It's definitely related. Um, they were starting to do infrastructure stuff in like 2005, 2006. Um, and I think it was actually really climate change, dri- or not climate change driven, um, climate, like air quality driven. Like it was like deeply, deeply air quality driven. Um, and, you know, Paris, it's sort of weird. You don't think of it has like pretty substantially bad air pollution. And some of it's there, you know, running around with diesel fuel and stuff like that, or at least they were. Um, so they started doing a whole bunch of big picture redesigns and building out a bike network um, and then launched Philippe into that, into that sort of condition, which, you know, they also launched Philippe and they like didn't even pretend for a minute that it was a pilot. You know, they launched with 10,000 bikes and then they doubled down six months later. So they had 20,000 bikes on on the ground in a year. Um, You know, so you take a city that's pretty small, has the beginnings of a good bike lane network and you dump 20,000 bike share bikes onto it and it just you know takes off um and then since then they've just continued to double down and then the woman who was hidalgo was um she was like a senior administration official in the administration that was in in 2005 so it really was a continuation of policy over two mayoral terms so i think that helps a lot too that's super and it it actually it makes me sort of think about a general question about this whether whether the chicken or the egg comes first, right? If you're thinking about launching bike share, do you need the infrastructure on the ground in place to make your bike share successful? Or can you have a successful bike share system that, that promotes infrastructure development in the future? Because it, it seems like, you know, in all of the cities across the U.S. where bike share has now launched in some form or fashion, the infrastructure development in those cities varies pretty wildly. You know, if you think about sort of like some some Midwestern cities that have bike share, you don't often think about them as being sort of the infrastructure capitals of the world and, and maybe vice versa. Do you, what do you think about that? Is, is it the chicken or the egg or can, can they coexist in terms of driving the other? I think you need to have some. I mean, the best way to think of what bike share is good for is that it's sort of an accelerant. It's like pouring, you know, oil on a fire. And so if you have some bike infrastructure and some protected bike infrastructure because if you do the sort of like data into bike share users they're like super super sensitive to what kinds of lanes they use like if you look around new york they're disproportionately found in the protected lanes so you have to have some of that infrastructure down in the beginnings of a network and then you add bike share to it it's the accelerant and then that builds you the political momentum to go to town with the rest of your network but i think you do have to have some on the ground because Honestly, the reason why people don't ride is because they're worried about getting hit by a car. Most bike share users are already in that category of people who are like, you know, they ride sometimes, maybe I'm interested, maybe, you know, but they're already, they're not hardcore. They're not the people who are going to be, you know, or the majority of them aren't hardcore. They are not the people who are going to like ride in anything no matter what. So you have to have something on the ground that makes them feel comfortable trying it out, get their feet wet. And then you can use that huge influx of ridership that happens. Uh, to build your momentum for for more lanes. You know, I mean, I think New York is actually a really good example of that. We had, you know, the beginning of a couple of spines of 
a really fantastic protected lane network. And that's just been able to grow as City Bike came in. And when we were doing the, you know, the sighting and the rollout and the launch for City Bike, we were actually hearing from neighborhoods that hadn't, you know, particularly expressed too much interest either way in bike lanes. They're like, oh, well, you know, now City Bike's coming. Come on, DOT, where are you? You've got you to give us some, some protected lanes. This is, okay otherwise. this is not okay otherwise. So I think those two things work together in that, in that, um, in that order. You know, and then if you look from there at the, the sort of data nationally, NACTO did a study uh, maybe a year and a half ago, taking a look at um, increases in bike ridership, increases in lane mile construction, and then what that does to, to cycling risk, which is pretty cool too. And so again, it's the same story. As cities build more lanes, as more people ride, the risk to cyclists goes down and actually goes down by about 50% um, over the course of you know, a 10-year span. Um, and that, in turn, then gets more people excited about riding because they're like, oh, that's actually really cool. It's really viable. More people riding, more political pre- pressure for more lanes. It's sort of like a, what, a virtuous cycle. Nice pun. <laughs> I like that. I try. That's a good pun. So through your role at NACTO, looking at and discussing bike share on a national level, other than infrastructure, are there other sort of like canary in the coal mine or other sort of accelerants or, or indicators that cities are using to make the decision to either launch bike share or explore launching bike share? Hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think so. Bike share is sort of a funny thing. Um, you know, I think a lot of people saw it as something really cool and exciting and shiny a couple of years back. And it is actually fundamentally really cool and exciting and shiny. Uh, but I'm not, sure that most cities have a have a deeply coherent thought out reason for why they're doing it other than they think it's something that will help grow cycling um but the the sort of you know there are a lot of systems that have systems that are pretty small um and a lot of systems that sort of launched as, as pilots even after the idea had been pretty well proven and tested um so i i not entirely sure if that answers your question, but it, it's hard to say. I think bike share is something that a lot of cities wanted to have because it was something that they wanted to have. Um, and thinking about it strategically in terms of how would you use bike share to really grow your cycling has been a little bit, there's not a hard science out on it. I don't think that answered your question. I think, it, I mean, I think it kind of did. I think it made me really think about our city's still looking at bike share as this new shiny thing that can potentially increase bike share. Do you find that cities are still kind of stuck there? There's not a ton of strategy around why you're going to launch, why you're going to do a a pilot or a robust launch. Yeah. I mean, I think the big problem honestly comes to the sort of, a lot of the funding questions and to some mm-hmm. extent the pilot question too. Um, I, I, there has not been a U.S. city that has sat down and said, we know this is going to work. We're going to go for broke and done it at the scale and speed as for example, Paris, like no one else has said, we're going to blanket our city, you know, with 10,000 bikes in the first, you know, in our, in our launch and six months later, double down. That just hasn't happened. Um, and I think that how insanely popular and what huge ridership numbers are coming out of Paris are really testimony to partially the beginnings of, of a really great 
uh, lane network, but also just they went for broke. They were just like, you know, go big or go home. This is going to work. Um, you know, and I think there are some 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 U.S. cities that have started down that path and have gotten decently far. Um, you know, the Chicago system is is increasingly increasing and you know continuing to grow, and that's great. Um, what just happened in San Francisco is fantastic in the Bay Area, going from you know a 700 bike system to a 7,000 bike system. You know, saying like, look, we think this really works. We're going to go for it. Um, you know, New York started with 6,000 bikes. We're now at 12. You know, but nobody in the U.S. has really just said, screw it, we're going for it. And that small size limits the utility of bike share and then limits the ridership and so then limits the the degree to which it can have all the benefits that, that we know that it can have in terms of increasing ridership, getting people out of cars, providing jobs, uh, you know, providing a whole host of other economic uh, benefits and, and the rest of that. So it's a little bit complicated um, you know, and to some extent, like, we don't have a national government in the same way that a lot of the European countries do. So it's not, you know, it's just a totally different funding world. And cities are cash-strapped and cities are coming up with, you know, they have to come up with all different ways to fund all different really important fundamental projects. Um, but the sort of idea that we know this will work and we're going to go for it, we haven't really seen here. Kay, does, do you think that's related just to a general lack of commitment to bicycling just overall in the U.S.? You know, that we that if you sort of take a step back, it's not that the cities just haven't gone for broke with bike share, but they haven't really gone for broke with with biking, right, in the same way? Yeah, I mean, that, <clears throat> they're probably definitely related. Um, I mean, I think some of it is that it's a really hard thing to imagine. You know, it's I mean, I think that's one of the things why, you know, for example, the people for bike study tours are probably really, really valuable for a lot of people because, you know, most people the last time they got on a bike was when they were, like, what, 12? And they sort of remember and it was fun, but it wasn't associated with any of the thing that, things that are sort of part of the daily grind of their, you know, day-to-day existence. Um, and so being able to go somewhere and, like, see all these people just being like, well, yes, of course I'm dressed in a suit and going to my fancy business meeting. Of course I'm on a bike. Like that whole just total paradigm shift of like what you would even use a bike show for is, you know, that's hard to imagine if you haven't seen it. And I think that's part of the reason why we don't do it here, because it's just really hard to imagine. You know, it's one of the nice things about all of the tactical urbanism design work, um, largely because it gives people something physical to imagine from. You know, it's really hard to for most people to look at a street and be like, I can imagine this looking totally different and it'll be great. Um, and so if you can do the tactical urbanism stuff, you know, in whatever material, in paint, in chalk, in a bollard, in a planter, and, you know, Ikea furniture, um, and give people something to latch onto that so they can start seeing the street, their physical space a little different, it gives you a really big lever to to go a lot further, you know. And I think the funny thing about transportation is that you know, so much of transportation projects, particularly capital projects, they tend to be measured in like years, if not decades. And it's pretty easy to think that our streets have, you know, always looked this way. And the honest answer is that they haven't actually always looked this way. They've looked this way for the past, you know, 60, 80 years since the invention, like the real widespread adoption of the car. But we used to live in very, very different places within people's lifetimes. You know, and sort of helping people get a sense of what that could look like, what that could feel like in whatever material and whatever pop-up, you know, short-term, tactical, whatever, is, I think, a really valuable way to help people 
help people imagine that what they're looking at could be totally different and get excited about it. Do you think there's also a flip side to that sort of short-term response? I think thinking of kind of bike share and comparing it to other public transportations that, you know, the metrics are longer term, that because of bike share's funding structure, that it may not all be public money and it may have a different business model than public transportation. It's held up to um, tenants of success that tactical urbanism or creative placemaking or other sort of kind of private public partnership type product projects are held and it doesn't necessarily fall into the same sort of metrics that traditional public transportation has. You know, I know public transit, you know, doesn't necessarily have great fare box returns, but also has all this, you know, federal or state or city funding that allows public transit, as an example, to continue on bike share. You need ridership because you need to bring in revenue to kind of like scrape by while also potentially being subsidized through, absolutely through sponsorship, but through other funding streams. And so I just, it's, I don't have an answer either, but I think it's kind of interesting the way that bike share, I think Mm -hmm. launched in the U S creates this sort of really sort of unsustainable model. And then you add on the aspect of equity and it becomes, I think, potentially even more from a financial situation, at least to date, um, this kind of uphill battle on on figuring out how to how to fund a nonprofit that's not a startup and it's not a small business and it's not necessarily. I mean, I, I get that some, you know, a lot of bike share programs are are city run, but I think it's just like a very interesting kind of anomaly when you look at, you know, public transit or other city projects that that service, you know, the population. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because we ask both bike share and transit to do a lot without very much, you know, Mm -hmm. transit routinely gets asked to run through neighborhoods where, you know, which tend to be low income and tend to be low density and make absolutely no sense from a fare box recovery point point of view, but they make total sense from a public sector, the responsibility of government point of view, you know, and on top of that, you add the indignity of, those same transit lines running on streets that are totally designed to work against them. And that, mm-hmm. at which point, you know, transit is slow and unreliable and the buses bunch and all that sort of stuff. So like you ask a lot from it. And I think bike share on some level is actually probably pretty similar. You know, we're asking, you know, for, for bike share systems often to, to make a profit or, you know, at least break even or be sustainable. Um, and that is fundamentally based on the number of riders, but again, in conditions that are, you know, largely pretty crappy for riding, you know, and, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting thing with bike share because the point of bike share shouldn't, like the point of bike share, it's, it's part of a larger conversation about mobility. You know, it's not just that like every place in the world or every place in the United States should have bike share. It's that in the places where bike share, which is fundamentally something that's meant for, you know, short one to two mile bike trips is the best way to increase people's mobility, we should have it. And in other places where people's bike trips, for whatever reason, are longer or, or crazy hilly or you know need something else, cities should be providing the other pieces of bicycle infrastructure, be it lanes or bike parking or you know something that I haven't even thought of before. Um, they should be running those to to get people that same degree of mobility that bike share provides in other areas where it's more suited. You know, but again, it, it's it's a really complicated conversation because we're just so far 
are behind in terms of basic mobility in most cities and basic mobility, particularly on bikes. So bike share starts to sort of get asked to be a panacea for, for a lot of things that it actually can't do. Kate, I want to ask, I have two questions actually about the future of bike share. And my first one is short and, and they're, they're sort of related because it feels like you know, sort of the long-term future of bike share. There's a couple, there's some influencing factors happening right now. But my first question is, do you ever see in the U.S. a future of bike share that's similar to sort of like the Dutch model of bike share, where bike share becomes a, a part of the public transportation system? You know, that your that your train fare, your bus fare, and your bike share system are all run by a public agency that you're able to access all the services that they work together in tandem or are, are we are, are we destined not to sort of have bike share move in sort of that that really broad public model and still and still kind of exist in this quasi governmental model i mean i think from a user perspective scenario i think that would be fantastic you know and, and sort of listening to the guys up in montreal they're doing some fare card integration st- stuff right now you know where eventually you will be able to do you know some portion of just that you know take a bus ride and then transfer for free from bus to, to bike share um the skeptic in me doubts that the sort of u.s political financial capitalist structure um would let that happen. We're pretty bad about nationalizing things, even when they do make sense as natural monopolies. Um, so I think it's highly unlikely that it would happen in that way where the government is actually taking it and running it, even if that was the best thing for, for the users and for people. Um, but that idea of that degree of seamlessness and interoperability is really where we should be trying to figure out how to get ourselves you know, and then adding in the fact that, you know, again, we're, you know, the people who take transit, the people who ride bikes in this country are, you know, often low income. They are largely more likely to be low income. And if you think about, you know, economic mobility and paths out of poverty, physical mobility, the ability to get to a job is, you know, pretty much the biz- biggest indicator of whether or not you are going to be able to get out of poverty. So we need these systems to work. Um you know, we need them to work well and we need them to work well for, for everybody. And so that's going to be a whole other piece of the puzzle that it's going to be hard to make sure that it stays in there. You know, the, the sort of financial mm, incentives for, for private companies as they come into the bike share space is going to be to maximize revenue. Um, and that often comes at the, the cost of all the other social things that we expect and want out of our bike share, our transit our, you know, our city, our urban mobility tools. Yeah, that, that leads to my second part of this question is, is the future of bike share sort of private operators, um, you know, built on a built on motives of profits? And, you know, Sarah and I have already talked uh, the last two episodes about you know, the hot topic in bike share right now are dockless systems, you know, the, the, the new uh, VC money that's coming in to sort of the bike share space is, is the future uh, in your opinion, this sort of like totally private model that that somehow undermines the the public private partnerships that sort of exist and dominate today. I hope not. Um, I really hope not because I think that bike share and this whole mobility conversation that we're having 
works best when it is a public-private partnership with with you know government and private and nonprofit partners. Um, you know, I have I have nothing wrong with companies turning a profit. Companies should turn a profit. I think that's that's a good thing. Um, but I think that again, we as as you know, when folks are in government, as what government should be doing. I say we as government because I used to work for city government, but you know we have a different set of responsibilities and in terms of making a region healthier, in terms of making a country healthier, um, the government has a, a particularly strong role to make sure that the, the folks who don't have a lot get what they need. And a lot in terms of mobility is again, making sure that they can actually afford to, to get to that job so that they can have a job so that they can, you know, do all the things that, people do like pay rent and buy groceries and send their kids to school and, you know, go on to become what the next Bill Gates, you know, I mean, like whatever it is, like there's, there's a bunch in there that is a, that is a government responsibility. Um, and private companies don't have that, that motivation. They don't necessarily need to, but they need to work with government to make sure that those needs get met because we've got a limited amount of space. We're all playing in, you know, the same cities on the same streets and the same roads on the same sidewalks. And those competing interests need to be managed and met somehow. And you can't have a total, you know, one side takes all uh, at the detriment of large swaths of your population. I hope that we can get to a place where where it does stay, you know, something that's really serving the public good, regardless of who the operator is and, and sort of how it's financially set up. If you had like a, ma- let's say you have a magic wand... And you alone are able to like define what the responsibility of bike share is on a national or international, even like city level. Like, what is the responsibility of bike share to its citizens? Yikes! Uh, the responsibility of bike share to its citizens. <laughs> um, wow. Um, I mean, it's really part of an urban mobility. It's, it's part of the menu of things that you can use to get around. And so I think BikeShare's responsibility is to be the best it can be to, to provide those short, again, one to two mile trips, that option for short one to two mile trips for people in areas that are where they're making those trips, which tend to be the sort of the dense urban cores of, of cities. Um, I think BikeShare excels at that. And I think that's its responsibility to to help make those trips as easy as possible for as many people as possible. But it's part of a larger conversation, again, about, you know, overall mobility in a city, overall mobility in a region. It might not be the perfect, it might not be the right tool to increase mobility in some parts of a city, in some parts of a region. And so it shouldn't be used there. But the places where it does make sense, we should make sure it goes. And that's, you know, largely a lot bigger, a lot more territory than it currently covers in most places in the U.S., I think you're going to need a bigger magic wand, Kate. I know. I might need a bigger magic wand. <laughs> like a magic staff, maybe. Like a wizard staff. Ooh, does that, that like a staff with like multiple people? I can, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. A fully, like, a bunch of full-time staffs. <laughs> I mean, this is some of the stuff that, um, you know, doesn't get talked about in Bike Share that often. And I think some of it's just because the data is not hugely there, but... There's a lot about bike share that also goes beyond the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of the interesting things that we've run into over the course of the past, you know, couple of years of studying it for, for the Better Bike Share partnership and with NACDO is that there are like 1,500 some odd people who are employed by Bike Share in the United States. About mm, a third of them are in New York and probably another third are collectively between Washington and Chicago. Um, and what's really interesting about those three cities, uh, New York, Washington, New York, Washington, and Chicago, is that all the bike share jobs in those cities are unionized. So what we're now talking about is jobs that are paying living wages with benefits. And so when we go and start thinking about, you know, all the other conversations that are happening in cities right now about gentrification and displacement and making sure that people are making a living wage so that they can stay in their houses, stay in their neighborhoods, all that stuff. Bike share jobs are actually part of that solution. Like unionized jobs is a big deal. You know, 1,500 jobs is nothing to sneer at. That's that's a lot of people who are employed directly by bike share. And that's not even talking about like, you know, people who are employed by bike shops, which are increasing because more people are riding or people who are employed in government that are doing the planning or people who are doing the consulting or sort of all the other like spillover jobs that are associated with the bike industry. So there's a lot of benefit that that comes from having these systems in cities at the right scale, um, you know, and really well organized and well coordinated with with the, the sort of larger, you know, city goals about how do you help your citizens do best. You're doing a pretty good job of segueing topics here, Katie, because I wanted to ask, ask you about your work with the Better Back Share Partnership. And Sarah has heard me make this comment before, but but I've I've always noted to her and to others that I've always felt like the work that's occurring with the Better Bike Share Partnership, as it's working to understand the ways in which bike share plays into conversations of equity within cities is that those lessons aren't special or particularly unique to bike share that the, 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 the what we're learning through the partnership and what we're learning by activities that cities um, are doing in that space actually translate to almost all other aspects of civic uh, and community engagement that cities you know if you think about their bike program they should be following the same kinds of you know, the same kinds of strategies as they're thinking about building infrastructure and cities should be thinking about that same kind of strategies when they're thinking about getting people out and motivated to, to vote during local elections. It, so I, I'm curious to know, do, do you see any of your work like that sort of, which, which is very focused, very sort of uh, met the magnifying glasses on bike share, but do you, do you see sort of like that, that bigger implications of, of the work that's happening there? Totally. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think bike share is, is the thing we're looking at now, but the lessons are, you know, as you said, really, really widely applicable to a lot of uh, bike policy, bike planning, and then even bigger than that than transportation policy, transportation planning, and probably just a lot about how uh, how cities should be interacting with their, with their citizens. Um, I think two things. One that was sort of one of the more fun projects that I've gotten to work on through the Better Bike Share Partnership was uh, a sort of a case study report with an organization in Bedsty, Brooklyn called Bedsty Restoration. Um, and they're a community-based development organization. They've been around for like 50 some odd years. Um, and they offer, you know, really basic services in um, a pretty poor neighborhood of the city. You know, so financial literacy. Uh, healthy cooking classes, uh, job training, job assistance, job placement, you know, this whole big raft of, of social services. They have absolutely nothing to do with bikes. Um, 
And it's actually interesting because when I was working for city government, we'd approach them because they were, you know, one of the big civic organizations in Bed-Stuy. Um, and we'd approach them and said, you know, bike share's coming. We'd love to talk with you about station placement in your neighborhood. And they were, they were very, very polite, but they also kind of looked at us like we had like, I don't know, not six heads, like three dozen heads. I mean, they're just like, what, what are you talking about? Um, you know, but they were nice and they were polite and they were helpful. And, you know, it sort of stayed at that level. And then with the Better Bike Share partnership, they got back involved. And so it became a partnership of uh, Bedside Restoration, City DOT, the Health Department, Motivate the Bike Share Operator. <coughs> and they all, um, they came together to really think about what it would take to to make ridership grow in bed and address some of the real concerns in that neighborhood about, you know, it's really expensive to live in New York and how do we get to our jobs easier? And, you know, how do we get some basic, you know, activity and exercise and, you know, uh, growing obesity concerns and growing asthma concerns and all these things. And they put together this amazing coalition that ended up, you know, I think they had a 56% increase in ridership in, in Bed-Stuy. They did all this work, the housing projects in the area. They had huge, ingr- huge increases in, in, in ridership from, from the NYCHA developments. Um, you know, but all of that stuff, it's way bigger than bike share, you know, and all of it is deeply, deeply applicable to like everything else a city should be doing in terms of how it approaches projects and how it rolls out those projects and who it talks to and how it engages people. Because the thing about the partnership is that it wasn't about, you know, here's bike share, come use it. It was, here's bike share, and it fits, you know, these five things that you said that your community needs, that, you're said, that you said that your community wants. Here's how bike share can help you get a little closer to your goals, as opposed to, you know, come pay attention and be excited about our goals. And that's totally applicable to, like, all transportation, all progressive transportation, all biking work. Um, the other thing that I think relates, and it's a little more tangential, and it's actually kind of a, a scary story in the land of, like, well, transportation and, God help us, urban planning and zoning, like, dorkery. But I was at this, um, you know, bike share thing, and there were a whole bunch of community advocates in the room, and they were, like, super excited about bike share. Um, and one of them was this guy from uh, an African-American neighborhood, pretty low income. Um, and he was like super excited about bike share. He was like an ambassador for his local bike share system. He was really jazzed about it. He thought it was great, but he's also the the head of his neighborhood association. And he's telling the story about how, you know, his neighborhood was just getting so frustrated because there was all this new stuff happening, new development happening. And it didn't feel like it was for them, you know, and they were really concerned and no one would ever consult them and they were never at the table. Um, and somebody keyed them into the fact that, their zoning was um, allowed for multifamily houses, which is why all this new stuff is getting built. And so he and his uh, his like community board or his sort of neighborhood association went to the city council and petitioned the city council to reduce their zoning down to single family. And he was telling this like it was this great story because for him, what it meant is that everything was now single family. And then anytime anybody wanted to build anything different, they'd have to come back to the neighborhood groups and ask permission. And that would make sure that these neighborhood groups that have been begging for a seat at the table for years finally had a like system-based guaranteed way to have a seat at the table. But the reality of it in terms of sort of like how the rest of like land use policy and politics and zoning works essentially just means that if he's already in a neighborhood that's having the beginnings of an affordability and a gentrification crisis, he's just reduced the supply of housing that's going to get built. 
which means that it's more likely that him and his neighbors are going to get kicked out because somebody with a higher salary is going to you know, come in and, and take over those rents and take over those, those apartments and those houses. And all the other things that you might want, like, oh, I don't know, better transit service, suddenly becomes harder to justify because it's a lower population density. There are fewer people living there. So all those services become harder for the city to provide. And it's this, like, really screwed up thing where all these guys wanted was a seat at the table, you know, and what they've effectively done with zoning is made it more likely that they're going to get screwed. Um, And so I think about that in the context of all the work with Better Bike Share about making sure they're ambassador programs and making sure that they're not just like, you know, check the box ambassador programs, but they're real and they're involved. And like, you know, you think about the work happening that you guys have been doing in Memphis or that's happening in Atlanta or in Philadelphia or in Los Angeles, you know, the pretty hardcore efforts to really bring people in from from the ground and have this be their system. You know, and again, like the Bedside story, like using Bike Share to meet their goals, not somebody else's. You know, and the more we can bake that into the, the sort of process of how good things that we want get done on, on city streets, you know, the more we avoid situations where, you know, what, what just happened in, you know, in that, in that community where, you know, a really heartfelt desire to be at the table ends up in a situation that's really going to screw them down the end of the, down the line. That was a really long answer to, to your question. No, it's a big, it's a big question. So, I mean, it requires a big, a big answer, I think in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I have been known on the podcast, Kate, to invoke democracy. Um, and I think, you know, (laughs) that, you know, to, to your earlier point about, you know, how, how widespread are these lessons, you know, in ways that cities engage? I mean, I think some of this is just fundamental. If you, you know, if we if we want to claim to have you know a, a democratic society where people are represented, you know, some of this is just a fundamental element of democracy, and so you know, it's it, it sort of goes back to that for me, I think, in a lot of ways. And so, I'll, I'm going to continue to invoke democracy. Um, I did so I did so in a Star Wars chat room a couple weeks ago that I talked with Sarah about on the podcast, which was you know maybe the weirdest very place, nerdy may, maybe the weirdest place nerdy. I've invoked democracy, but I went with it. <laughs> I well, I connections faint, but there. I'm encouraged by the equity conversation on bike share because let's say cities aren't thinking a ton about why they want to launch a bike share system, but it is bright and shiny, and they're able to secure funding. And if then you're able to also wrap your head around the fact that this is public transportation and it should be equitable, I think the lessons we're all learning through projects like the Better Bike Share Partnership and, you know, activities in New York and Philly, and I'll include Memphis as well, like also benefits how I hope someday Memphis's, you know, transportation authority starts thinking differently about community engagement and how the funding that Explore Bike Share has raised will go directly into to neighborhoods that have had, you know, um, disparities in terms of wealth and investment and health. And I think that hopefully, you know, bike share, I think can sometimes be a scapegoat for equity, but hopefully that turns into being this sort of like beautiful thing that we're able to leverage the funding and the, and the momentum and create more equitable services and amenities for a city is kind of using bike share as like the shiny thing that gets people's attention, but you're also affecting, you know, a community organization in a positive way or a health and wellness program or relooking at how, you know, TDOT makes decisions. Yeah. I mean, that would be, that would be, really that's cool. my magic wand. I, could I like be, it. 
totally bonkers <laughs> or just delusional and naive. But <laughs> I mean, it's also been great with the Better Bike Share Partnership just to to see who's out there and to be, you know, a small part of helping give the microphone to the people who should have had it all along. Um, and that's been really nice to to see this, you know, whole cadre of people around the country who are who are working on this and, and thinking about this and, you know, who aren't necessarily the people in, in, in planning schools and, and have a lot to say. You know, we NACTA put together a a video about bike share last year, sort of sort of lessons of the, the Better Bike Share Partnership. And as we were putting together the video, it was actually really cool because it was really easy to put together a video with six or seven different speakers. And uh, I think one of them was white and one of them was male. And like, that's the bike share space. And that was really, really cool. You know, it's very different from sort of how a lot of transportation happens. And it was nice to be able to, to sort of help make that happen. Kate, bike share sort of continues to evolve pretty rapidly as a as an industry and as a service. And I'm I'm really excited about the future of bike share as, as it relates to sort of the innovation that's continuing to on be ongoing with you know just how it's being offered to the public and the ways in which new people can be reached through it. I'm particularly really fascinated by the by the growing interest in incorporating e bikes into bike share, and then also you know ways in which uh, uh, adaptive bicycles can can reach new audiences of persons with disabilities. Is there anything that sort of that you're sort of excited about on this sort of the innovation and um, the innovation front for that? I think I mean both of the things you mentioned. There's there's a ton of of growth and exciting things happening in those areas. Um, Portland and Detroit um, have definitely done some really smart things about thinking through how do you bring, for example bikes into that accessibility like that accessibility space um and it and it's not bike share and i think it's important to think of it as as somewhat separate but making sure that that you know folks who have physical disabilities can use bikes in you know in a easy and convenient fashion is 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 pretty awesome and really again part of that larger mobility conversation i personally tend to think a little bit less about the the tech side of things only because i feel like we have so much further to go on some of the fundamentals and those being, you know, sort of back to where we started, bike lanes, that basic protected intersection inter- infrastructure so people feel feel safe riding. And also just really thinking of it in the, the sort of the the ease of use, the customer side in terms of, you know, how easy it is to really find a bike, how easy it is to to really use one on the just like, you know, you just know where a bike is and you go and you grab it. Um, you know, I think a lot about the the so you know that Roger Geller graph of you know the sort of universe according to your propensity to bike so you know on one end so it's like the whole world and on one end you've got the like the strong and the fearless and it's like one percent of the population and you know they'll ride in anything no no matter what you know and next to them are the like you know I think it's the enthused and confident and they're like you know six percent seven percent um and they'll ride in, you know, most things. And then on the like way, way other end, there's the what Roger called the the no way, no how. Um, and there's like that's like thirty percent of the population, and like you're just never going to get them on a bike. Fine, um, you know. And what's interesting about that that those first two percentages, the you know, the enthused and confident, and the strong and the fearless, is that's basically who we've managed to reach so far with biking, with bike share. Like that, that that's you know, it's a teeny, teeny, teeny portion of the market. Um, but what's in the middle? 
that huge 60% is this, you know, group called the interested but concerned. And they're totally on board for biking. Like, think it's really cool. They think it's really fascinating, but they're scared of getting hit by a car. Um, and that's where the market is. Like, that's where for, for bike share, for biking, for everything we're talking about, that's the market. And that's what we're missing. And then if you drill down into that group, which is what Jennifer Dill from PSU did, she asked those people, you know, like, what would it take to get you on a bike? You know, would it, you know, would you ride if there was no bike lane? Would you ride if there was like a single, um, you know, a regular striped bike lane? And what basically everybody told her is that like 80% of them are like, the thing that would get me on a bike is protected infrastructure. And so what we're dealing with is a situation where the market, 60% of the population is game to ride a bike if we could just make them feel safe doing it, if we could just build them that infrastructure. And I feel like we forget about that piece of it so much in the sort of conversations about tech and conversations about bike share. Um, and it's really where we need to focus because, you know, none of this makes sense regardless of the tech, you know, regardless of dock or dockless or e-bike or, you know, adaptive, all that stuff. None of that happens unless we can figure out how to tap into that 60% of the market that wants to ride, but, really just wants a protected lane to do so. Protected bike lanes for all. Totally. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny because it sounds so like, but know, it's tr- so infrastructure and boring, but it's, it's true. But it's so true. Like it's really. I'm with you. I would, if I were to run for mayor or something with my magic wand, I would, I, I would be protected bike lanes for all. I probably wouldn't get elected, but it's a great platform. I <laughs> that would be my platform. <laughs> well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. This was fantastic. I have like a bajillion other questions, but we'll just have to have you on again. Okay. This was great. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you taking time. It was great to see you in Montreal and share a flight from Montreal to New York together. Yes. I hope you didn't spend too much time. I did. LaGuardia. Oh, good. I was in LaGuardia just, just a little hour longer than I thought. So it was fantastic. They got those iPads everywhere. I was just able to get on an iPad. Yeah, that's like the only thing they have in LaGuardia. <laughs> like literally just like seas of iPads. <laughs> yes. They might leak, but they have iPads. Exactly. <laughs> priorities. Total priorities. We got them nailed down. Um, thank you guys so much. This was wonderful. The Bike Nerds podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds. Sarah. And Kyle. And the OAM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoamnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.